You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hey friends, and welcome to today's episode of The Myth Pilgrim. I hope you're keeping well today, and I pray that the Lord showers the good health and fortune upon you this day. <laughs> so, so today we'll have a slightly different flavouring to other Myth Pilgrim episodes, because I have the privilege of introducing you to a bit of Chinese philosophy. And as you've picked up from the title, I will be doing this through Kung Fu Panda. Be not deceived by the outwardly comedic veneer of this story, for even Chinese reviewers celebrate the film's faithful depiction of Chinese philosophy. I'm doubly excited to present this episode to you because I, your unworthy host, am also Chinese by blood, and I've always had the greatest respect for my own culture. Now, in case you're worried that a Catholic exploring Chinese philosophy is slightly heretical, fear not. For firstly, philosophy is not religion, and neither Confucianism or Taoism, uh, which we'll be exploring today, worships any form of God or even spirit. Rather, they are both systems of thought that try to give an orderly account of reality. In the same way that Christians have long revered the Greek philosophy of Plato and Aristotle to inform its theology, the same attitude can actually apply for Chinese philosophy or even Eastern philosophy. Remember, the Catholic faith maintains that Jesus alone is the truth, absolute truth if you like. This means that his church always recognises and celebrates truth wherever it's found, whether it's in philosophy or the natural sciences, literature, art, psychology, etc. etc. As you'll hopefully see this episode, there are many ways Chinese philosophy can shed light on the truths of Catholic theology, truths that have certainly helped me grow deeper in love with God. Okay, so as with other episodes, I'll begin by firstly presenting the Kung Fu Panda story here in summary. Po, a overweight panda, is a secret Kung Fu fanatic who lives in the Valley of Peace while working for his goose foster father's noodle shop. One day, a Kung Fu tournament is hosted by the Valley's spiritual leader, Master Wu Gui, a name which actually means turtle in Chinese, or Wu Gui in Cantonese. The tournament was held to find the prophesied dragon warrior, the Kung Fu master capable of understanding the secret of the dragon scroll, which was said to contain limitless power. It was important the dragon warrior be found soon, because the evil Tai Long had escaped from prison and was bearing down upon the valley. Everyone expected the dragon warrior to be one of the five Kung Fu disciples being trained by Master Shifu. To everyone's surprise, however, Master Ugwe chooses Po instead, even though he had just stumbled into the tournament by accident. There are no accidents. Refusing to believe the tubby panda could ever become the dragon warrior, Master Shifu protests, and he and Master Ugwe have a long disagreement under a cherry blossom. Master, that panda is not the dragon warrior. He wasn't even meant to be here. It was an accident. There are no accidents. (sighs) My old friend... The panda will never fulfill his destiny, nor you yours, until you let go of the illusion of control. Illusion? 
Uguay tries to help Shifu see beyond the way things look on the outside and to trust the hands of destiny instead. By the end of this conversation, Uguay departs into the spirit realm in a beautiful flurry of cherry petals, leaving Shifu the unenviable task of bringing out the dragon warrior within Po. Shifu initially subjects Po to torturous training exercises in order to hopefully make him quit. But because Po was determined to become someone of respect, he perseveres in his training and befriends the other five of Shifu's disciples, who had previously mocked him. With time, Master Shifu discovers that Po is quite capable of martial arts when he is motivated by his belly, his major weakness, and proceeds to slowly train him in the ways of Kung Fu. A beautiful master-disciple relationship forms. When his training is complete, Po is finally bestowed the Dragon Scroll with much ceremony. But when he unravels it, he discovers it is actually blank. At this moment, the evil Tai Long arrives with his goonies and terrorizes the valley. After realizing that his usual kung fu skills was no match for Tai Long, Po realizes through his unwitting goose father that the key to limitless power lay within himself and not in the scroll. Come here, the secret ingredient is nothing. Huh? You heard me. Nothing. There is no secret ingredient. Wait, wait. It's just plain old noodle soup. Heeding this message, Po finds the means to defeat Tai Long, and peace and prosperity are returned to the valley. So there's the story in summary. Now, classical Chinese philosophy is roughly divided into two schools of thought: Confucianism and Taoism. With Lao Tzu being Taoism's greatest teacher, or you can just say Lao Tzu if you want to be an Australian bargain. <laughs> Both Confucius and Lao Tzu were contemporaries in the sixth century BC of China. And it would be fair to say that both philosophies have equally shaped Chinese culture right to this date. In fact, it wouldn't be wrong to suggest that these guys have shaped Eastern culture as much as the Greeks have shaped Western culture. And certainly, you'll find Confucian and Taoist principles stamped all throughout Kung Fu Panda. I will quickly mention here that a third school of thought, Buddhism, has also made its mark upon Chinese philosophy. But since its principles are largely absent from Kung Fu Panda, we won't be exploring that today. So let's begin with Taoism. How is it present in Kung Fu Panda? Well, both Po and Master Shifu's journeys are pretty much a story of discovering the Tao and flowing with it. You'll be interested to know that the word Tao, which where we get the name Taoism from, actually means the way. For Taoism is all about living a life in conformity and following the way. This is of course of interest to us because Christianity also claims to follow the way, capital W way, who we profess, of course, to be Jesus Himself, the way, truth, and life. But what is the way that Taoism professes? Well, a big clue lies in the central theme of Po's journey. He's learning to embrace the great paradoxes of his life.、Hmm. Some examples of the paradoxes would be: How can Po reconcile his noodle-making upbringing with his kung fu mastery? How can Po's goose father provide wisdom beyond even his greatest masters? How can Po's gluttony be the hallmark of his spiritual growth? How can a gentle panda? Become the ferocious dragon warrior, and how can the secret to unlimited power be revealed to be nothing at all? 
See, this mystery of embracing paradox is presented in Taoism's famous symbol, the yin-yang circle. If you don't know what this looks like, I suggest pausing the podcast and doing a quick Google search first. Now, unlike the popular Western misunderstanding, the yin-yang symbol does not represent a binary way of seeing the world. It is not good versus evil, light versus dark, male versus female, activity versus rest, etc. Rather, what the yin-yang symbol represents is that perfection exists when yin and yang are allowed to exist in the right balance. How this is achieved is always a mystery, but as a start, the easiest way to understand yin and yang is probably using the images of feminine and masculine. Yin represents feminine traits like gentleness, passivity, water, light, the inner self, whereas the yang represents masculine traits like strength, activity, fire, darkness, and the outer self. Whereas in Western philosophy, we like individual things clearly defined and categorized, Chinese philosophy instead upholds the intrinsic relationship between things. Yin can never be a value without yang, and when both are allowed to exist, and when both are in harmony, the Tao is found. You can see something of this dynamic playing out when you compare, say, the philosophies of Chinese medicine with Western medicine. Chinese medicine seeks to restore the balance of the whole body, whereas Western medicine tends to just target a specific area. And both approaches, of course, have their applications and their strengths. From a spiritual perspective, though, both the attention to the individual part and to the whole has its rightful place. But it's easy for us in the West to focus on one. At the expense of the other. For now, I will simply point out that concepts like evil and even sin exist in the Taoist framework too, but it's done so in this way: evil occurs when the yin and the yang are out of balance or are made to become out of balance. For example, if I were to impose force into a situation that otherwise required patience, I would be suffocating the yin and overindulging the yang. And when either the yin or the yang are out of balance, disorder and chaos are soon to follow. Let's now illustrate these ideas more concretely in Kung Fu Panda. The unbalance of yin and yang is evident in characters like the evil Tai Long, whose yang violently overpowers his yin. Tai Long placed far too much emphasis on physical strength at the expense of inner strength. He tried to seize the dragon scroll by force. Rather than receiving it in humility, and he channeled his passion into anger rather than in love and service. And then there's Po, the main character. As mentioned earlier, the genius of the story lies in Po learning to accept every part of his life and every part of who he is, both the yin and the yang. Po's humility allowed him to recognize that even the things he was most ashamed of had a place in achieving the Tao. As an example, Poe tried to compensate for his lack of fitness by getting up early to train harder than the other five disciples, and got nowhere in the process. Little could anyone guess that his lack of fitness would actually make him the most teachable student of Master Shifu, and that he would be taught through the thing that he was most ashamed of—his comfort eating. 
And of course, in the end, despite learning seemingly everything from the famous Master Shifu, it was his own goose father back at home who unwittingly teaches him the secret to unlimited power. This is the genius and mystery of the yin and yang. The way, the Tao, is never achieved by force and seizing, but more in surrendering and accepting. You could say, Poe fails in the first half of the story to get anywhere because he exercised too much yang, too much uh, masculine striving, too much force, too much denying his weaknesses, too much preoccupation with his outer world. Only when he learns to embrace his yin, characterized by slowing down, accepting himself, and paying attention to his inner world, does his circumstances begin to change and the dragon warrior slowly emerge. As we begin to explore these Taoist principles, can you see how this might shed some light upon Christianity? Because firstly, at the heart of our faith also lies great paradoxes. After all, we profess Jesus who is both God and man, who is both mercy and justice. We profess a kingdom that is here but not yet. Our own symbol, the cross, professes that out of sin comes grace and that out of death comes life. And we profess a church that is both institutional and charismatic, both human and divine. Dear friends, have you ever considered your own faith in this way? A faith that moves away from either-or thinking and instead embraces both-and thinking. If you haven't, I hardly blame you, because since the Enlightenment, where rationalism began to rule everything, we've tried to eliminate all paradoxes and instead give nice, clear answers and methods and programs for everything. We have become far too yang, for lack of a better word, in our approach to the spiritual life. And hence, even the church values doing rather than being. And we tend to prefer noise rather than silence, speaking rather than listening, and even in prayer, prefer to be active rather than receptive. Yet a large part of our faith, indeed, if not the larger part, is actually about embracing our yin, receiving, waiting, listening, and obeying. The Bible is clear that our lives are a response to grace, a response to the God who moves first, who loves us first. If I may hazard using Taoist terminology, God is the primary yang in our relationship, and our role is primarily yin. But modern Christianity has it just the opposite way around. We all try and become the yang, the active one. No wonder many of us struggle with a relationship with God, for we try and pursue this relationship in an overly active sort of way, in an upside-down sort of way. Of course, as hinted earlier, this hyper-stress on activity is not just a Christian phenomenon, but a Western phenomenon in general. Perhaps this is why so many in the West are fleeing our own spiritual heritage and turning towards Eastern spirituality to find some desperate way to rediscover yin and experience wholeness. Given this trend, it is extra important that Christianity, particularly Catholicism, rediscovers its own contemplative spirituality and to make it accessible once again to our culture. And Chinese philosophy might just give some of us good language to do this. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register.
all of that was just a basic introduction to the thought of Taoism. We'll now move on to the second Chinese philosopher, Confucius. In many ways, Confucius greatly complements Taoist thought. Whereas Taoism has a quasi-spiritual focus, Confucianism has a more pragmatic focus on social order and human relationships. Since the 6th century BC, Confucian thought has permeated everything from governance to education to the proper ordering of the household. Confucian wisdom is practical and day-to-day, and hence it is very quotable in fortune cookies. <laughs> he is famous for saying things like, The strength of a nation derives from the home. A sentiment echoed by St. John Paul II when he said, As the family goes, so goes the nation, and so goes the whole world in which we live. Now what these great men were getting at is not simply filial piety, but the proper ordering of any society. Good families are the building block even of mighty empires. Confucius spent much time discussing what he called the five fundamental relationships in a society, being between the ruler and subject, father and children, elder siblings and younger siblings, husband and wife, and friend and friend. Of all of these, Confucius actually suggests the most foundational one is the relationship between a father and his children, for this sets up a person for life. And even the emperor himself is but a reflection of the basic father-child relationship. For Confucius, there are no lowly positions in a society, for the glory of a person is reflected in how well he plays the role he is currently in. This means that a husband honouring his wife has more glory than an emperor who is unfaithful to his subjects. Oh, very wise, eh? One of the most evident ways Confucian principles are evident in Kung Fu Panda, I just said evident twice, is, is by observing the relationship between master and disciple. Whereas Western films tend to present romance as the most interesting type of relationship, Eastern films will more often highlight the master-apprentice relationship instead. In Kung Fu Panda, watching the master-disciple relationship between Master Ugui and Master Shifu is delightful, while the equivalent relationship between Master Shifu and Po become increasingly stirring as they learn to honour one another. By contrast, the greatest tragedy in Kung Fu Panda is the broken relationship between Shifu and Tai Long, with Tai Long being Shifu's adopted son. The fact that Tai Long no longer respected his former master, and the fact that the master felt he had failed his former disciple, was something that continued to haunt Shifu and rob his ability to flow with the Tao. Following Confucian principles, a rupturing of this type of fundamental father-son relationship is disastrous. Until it was resolved, Shifu couldn't submit to his own master, mentor his own five disciples properly, or even train Po to become the dragon warrior, which in turn left the valley in mortal danger. But once Shifu is able to reconcile with his past failure and to embrace Po as his son, right order is restored and everything else in the kingdom follows suit. So, how do all these Confucian principles illuminate our own faith? I've already touched upon the primacy of the family in the wider society, which is of course a key Catholic social teaching principle. But what I now want to focus on is the lost art of discipleship within modern Christianity. What I mean by discipleship is primarily the master-disciple-master-pupil relationship, something that is evident right throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moses intentionally disciples Joshua, Eli disciples Samuel, 
Elijah disciples Elisha, and so on. When we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus discipling the twelve, and even within the twelve, Peter, James, and John especially. Then we observe Paul discipling Barnabas, and later on, Timothy. See, in God's plan and wisdom, Christians don't just become Christians by joining a group or attending a weekly service. Fruitful maturation happens in a master discipleship relationship where we learn intimately from those ahead of us on the journey. We see these relationships in the Bible, but at the same time, we don't see them because we in the West have become so used to faith being a private walk with God. The closest things Catholics see today of discipleship is probably the relationship between spiritual director and directees, which is a beautiful relationship but sadly too rare. Yet, without the Jan Tiranoskis, there would be no St. John Paul II. If there was no Father Sopochko, there would be no St. Faustina. And if there was no John of the Cross, there would be no Teresa of Avila. These great men and women all had spiritual mentors that walked with them, taught them, and guided them. No Christian should have to start from ground zero or traverse the most important journey of our lives alone. It is in this regard that I feel Confucian principles can shed some light on Catholic spirituality. And hopefully, you can feel how desirable discipleship can be by observing the loyal and wavering love between the Chinese master and their disciple. So there we have it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that it has opened your eyes to how Chinese wisdom can shed light on our own faith. As we wrap up, I'm going to invite you to reflect on the discipleship principle I've just highlighted. How are you being discipled at present? Are you satisfied with the level of guidance you receive in your Christian walk? And who could you reach out to to guide you? And finally, is there someone the Lord may be inviting you to disciple? Perhaps someone in your immediate circles or community that could really do with an older sister or even a father figure? As your practical pilgrim reflection, ask the Lord to bring these people to prayer. All right, friends, thanks for joining me. Until next time, 再见. Journey forth, take care, and God bless. <laughs>